Please join me in welcoming to the Distinctive Voices podium, Dr. Kevin Peter Hand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, a, it's a great pleasure and, and honor to uh, be invited to give this uh, talk uh, and uh, a lot of fun to be here. Tonight, I'm going to be talking about ocean worlds of our solar system. And much of my interest in these worlds is motivated by the search for life elsewhere. And the search for life elsewhere is one of humanity's oldest, most profound, and yet unanswered of questions. And there's a lot to cover in that search for life elsewhere. And so just to make sure that expectations are set appropriately, tonight I will not be covering alien spaceships, abductions, or furry little creatures from distant planets. Oh, yes, well. <laughs> when I talk about the search for life elsewhere within our solar system, I'm really focusing on the search for even the tiniest of little microbe, because such a discovery would be truly revolutionary to the science of biology and to our understanding of our place in the universe. And this is a question that has fascinated me since I was a, a, a young child. Uh, this is me. <laughs> Looking at this picture, I guess it's no surprise I turned out to be a, a scientist. Uh, it's huge, nerdy glasses. Uh, thank Thank goodness they made contacts. Uh, I, I grew up in a small town in Vermont, uh, shown there in the background. And my imagination was captivated by the beautiful night sky and books like this that showed images of floating creatures in the atmosphere of Jupiter, some sort of big mouse-eared creature on Mars, and then some sort of dinosaur type of creature in the outer solar system. So I was captivated at an early age, and I feel very grateful that as an adult, I get to pursue that very same question, but of course with a lot more math, chemistry, geology, physics, and engineering, and a considerable amount of student debt at one point. <laughs> but I, I like to show this image also because it helps to emphasize um, part of what is, is truly interesting in our search for life elsewhere, and that is that in the background, those, those mountains of Vermont, you can see all of the, the life that covers the mountains. And in fact, our whole planet is covered by life. It's hard to find a place on our home planet where you don't find life. High, low, hot, cold, top, bottom, east, west, north, south, wherever you go for the most part, you find life. And the story of our search for life elsewhere is, in part, the story of this beautiful blue marble reaching out into our solar system and beyond in search of signs for life elsewhere. This diagram, a beautiful diagram made by National Geographic, shows one line emanating from Earth for each spacecraft that has been launched by the various space agencies around the world. The dimmer lines are failures, the brighter lines are successes. And as you can see, we have many lines that have gone off to the moon and off to Venus and to Mars. And the inner solar system has had quite a bit of robotic activity. But when you get out past the asteroid belt, you see that there are just a few lines that have extended beyond the asteroid belt. These 
a robotic spacecraft with names like Pioneer and, and Voyager and Galileo and Cassini, and most recently the uh, New Horizons uh, spacecraft and the Juno spacecraft. And one of the most remarkable things that we've learned from these, these few spacecraft that have gone out to these further reaches of our solar system is that we now have good knowledge that oceans exist beyond Earth. And what I'm showing you here is what I like to call our, our portrait of ocean worlds of our solar system. At the center, of course, is the Earth, the planet we know and love and that we need to take care of. And around the Earth, I've put several of the moons of the outer solar system. These are moons like Europa and Ganymede and Callisto, three moons of Jupiter. Titan and Enceladus, two moons of Saturn. And I've even got Neptune's curious moon Triton here. These are moons that are covered in ice. And in the case of Titan, it also has an atmosphere. These are moons that are covered in ice. And beneath their icy shells, we have good reason to believe that vast quantities of liquid water exist. They exist today, and it's likely existed for much of the history of the solar system. And that's very interesting in the context of our search for life elsewhere, because for the most part, we are trying to follow the water. Wherever we find liquid water on Earth, for the most part, we find life. And this is really changing our understanding of what it takes for a world to be habitable. In the early days of astronomy and planetary science, we thought that for a world to be habitable, it had to be at just the right distance from its parent star, in our case, of course, the sun, uh, you had to be at just the right distance from your parent star such that you had enough energy from that star so that you could maintain a liquid water ocean on the surface in contact with a nice atmosphere. If you were too close, you got too hot, like Venus, and you lost any water that you once had. If you were too far away, you got too cold, and you froze out and eventually lost any liquid water that you may have once had. But if you're just the right Earth-Sun or planet-star distance, then you could have an ocean of liquid water on the surface. And this was sort of the Goldilocks zone for habitability in the early days of planetary science. But now we know that this is an old Goldilocks. It's out of date because there are these oceans further out in the solar system where there's not enough solar energy, not enough power from our parent star to, to maintain liquid water at the surface. Instead, in this sort of new Goldilocks scenario, the energy to uh, power and maintain liquid water comes from the tidal energy interaction that these moons have with their, their giant planets. And there's no better example of that than, uh, than the Jovian system and Jupiter's moon Io. Io does not have an ocean, but Io is the most volcanically active body in our solar system, and it is so volcanically active because of that tidal tug and pull. And what you're looking at here in the inset is a volcanic eruption on Io near its North Pole. There are volcanoes erupting on Io right now. So in this new Goldilocks scenario, Io is kind of like Venus. It's got too much tidal energy. It lost any water that it once had. And Callisto, even though it does have an ocean, Callisto has very little tidal energy. Any liquid water that it has mainly comes from the decay of, of heavy elements. 
And so Callisto's ocean is trapped beneath a very thick and old ice shell. But in the middle, we've got Europa and Ganymede. And Europa in particular, we think, may occupy this new sort of sweet spot uh, for habitability, where it has just the right amount of tidal energy tug and pull so as to maintain a global liquid water ocean of about 100 kilometers depth beneath an ice shell that's maybe a few to as much as 15 kilometers or so in thickness. And so this really is a new Goldilocks for habitability. Some 20 to 30 times the volume of liquid water found on Earth exists beneath the icy shells of these moons of the outer solar system. And again, when we think about habitable environments on Earth, just about everywhere we go and explore and find liquid water, be it the depths of our own ocean, hot springs in the Rift Valley, uh, the Trans-Antarctic Mountains, everywhere we find even a, a little smidgen of liquid water, we find life figuring out a way to exist. From life in extreme environments to life of extreme lifestyles, all life on Earth requires liquid water. And I, I like to show this picture for, for another reason, and that is for all of the, the diversity of life on Earth, from, from the, the, the most extreme of microbe in our ocean's depth to the most extreme of, of rock stars, uh, for all of the, the visual diversity of life on Earth, we're all connected by the same tree of life. We're all connected by the DNA, RNA, protein, biochemistry. And part of what fascinates me about the search for life elsewhere and motivates my interest in these ocean worlds beyond Earth, is that these are worlds that we could go to and find life that is alive today. Life that may have a different biochemistry, life that would likely represent a second origin of life, life that could uh, answer the question of whether or not DNA, RNA, and proteins are the only game in town. And to answer those kinds of questions, you need to find living life. That's, a, that's an important contrast with Mars, where we're searching for evidence of life as preserved in the rock record on Mars. So how do we think we know that these ocean worlds exist? Well, I'll focus in on two of the ocean worlds that I think are most compelling in the context of our search for life elsewhere, and that's uh, Saturn's moon Enceladus and Jupiter's moon Europa. And the first thing to appreciate, of course, is that we have done the reconnaissance. We have flown by these moons with these marvelous spacecraft. On the left is the Cassini spacecraft uh, as it looked in the, the clean room up at JPL. It, of course, is now orbiting Saturn, and it has just recently made a, a, a burn to go into a, a polar orbit around Saturn, uh, where it will start to spiral in and eventually go into Saturn's atmosphere late next year, and that will be the end of the mission. And then in the upper right is the Galileo spacecraft, which uh, uh, orbited Jupiter over the course of the last uh, decade. It, it ended its life in the early 2000s. And this image was captured uh, by astronauts on the, uh, on the space shuttle as they sent Galileo off from the, uh, the space shuttle bay. So the spacecraft go out there, and of course, you need to have the ear on the ground, and that's the deep space network that's shown on the bottom right. So these spacecraft send back images like this, 
Here, of course, is Saturn and the rings of Saturn with, uh, in this case, uh, Enceladus above, uh, shown floating there above the, the rings with Saturn in the background. Now, Enceladus is a curious little moon. It's only about 500 kilometers or roughly 300 mi miles in diameter. And yet, if you take a closer look at Enceladus, what you see is that it's got a bizarre dichotomy, a, a bizarre um, uh, surface uh, where to the north you see many, many craters. And in the south, you see essentially no craters. To a planetary scientist, those craters are indicative of an old surface. You can kind of think of it like ski tracks in the snow. If there's lots of ski tracks in the snow, then it's not fresh powder and, and it's, uh, it's sort of old snow. Well, all of those craters uh, reveal that the, the northern ice of Enceladus is about three and a half billion years old. But to the south, there are essentially no craters. But instead, you see these fractures, these four to five parallel fractures that cut across that south polar terrain. And when the Cassini spacecraft made uh, a flyby at an oblique angle of these, uh, of these fractures with just the right sun angle, it captured the following photograph. Okay, you're supposed to ooh and ah at that. <laughs> this is one of the most astonishing images that I think NASA has ever captured uh, within our, our own solar system. What you're looking at are jets of water erupting out of these fractures. The Cassini spacecraft has managed to fly well within 100 kilometers of Enceladus's surface and actually taste these plumes jetting out of the, of the icy surface of Enceladus. And what the Cassini spacecraft has told us about these jets of water is that they contain not only water, but they contain salt, they contain methane, carbon dioxide, and some small organic compounds. And they also contain silica, SiO2, which is a bit of a, a canary in the coal mine for water-rock interaction and possibly low-temperature hydrothermal activity on a seafloor at the bottom of an ocean within Enceladus. So a truly profound discovery to see this ocean erupting out into space. Now on the surface, if you look straight down, those, those plumes are pretty diffuse, so you can't really see them. It's not like looking at, say, a, a snowmaking machine. But here you can see how uh, in the center there, roughly, uh, we think that there might be a plume erupting around there and maybe a couple of them across here. You can see how that material, the, the sort of snow of Enceladus, uh, falls back down and softens all of those cracks that are, that are um, uh, part of that icy surface. And so our picture for Enceladus, based on the, the direct observation of those plumes and then the, the uh, mass spectrometers and, and uh, infrared spectrometers that the Cassini spacecraft has, uh, leads to a, a, an image of Enceladus uh, like this, where we think that these plumes permeate uh, through the ice shell, they, they come up through fractures. There might be little aquifers a few kilometers down. This ice is maybe 40 kilometers or so in thickness. And it connects to an ocean. And in this image, 
the ocean is just in the south polar terrain. More recent data looking at uh, the movement of Enceladus's ice shell indicate that the, the ocean is in fact a global ocean. And so the tidal tug and pull may well be fracturing the ice, allowing water to percolate on up through those fractures and then eventually erupt out into space. So at Enceladus, the ocean uh, is, is, there's a smoking gun. We see the ocean erupting into space. With Europa, the story is a little bit more subtle. Uh, here's one of the few images that we have of Europa as captured by the Galileo spacecraft. Um, the Galileo spacecraft, as you may be aware, uh, had several different uh, problems with a high gain antenna and, uh, and the data relay back to Earth was, was very limited, but it was an incredibly successful spacecraft and managed to make many flybys of Europa. But it never saw plumes erupting out of the ice of Europa. Uh, it did observe all of these fractures, these cracks that we think uh, crack through the ice and possibly reach the ocean below. Uh, never were there seen new fractures being formed. Uh, and so unlike Enceladus, we don't have that sort of smoking gun of the ocean leaping out into space. Uh, the, the story of how we think we know the ocean exists is a bit more subtle, but it's very strong uh, in terms of the physics behind it, and I'll get to that in a moment. So, in, so Europa is about 3,000 kilometers in diameter. That's much bigger than Enceladus. Uh, it's about the size of our moon, shown here. But of course, Europa orbits Jupiter, which is some 318 times as massive as the Earth. And so you've got that tidal tug and pull that creates fractures and little dimples on Europa's surface, as can be seen here. And even though no active fractures were observed by the Galileo spacecraft, you can see that there is uh, considerable geological activity that, that must have taken place in the recent past. Here is a strike-slip fault. Uh, you can see how this fracture at one point in time was contiguous, but then another fracture came across and caused a a bit of a strike slip to occur. Based on the paucity of craters on Europa's surface, we think that its globally average surface age is 10 to maybe 100 million years uh, old. There are surfaces like this, and there are surfaces like this. Uh, this, by the way, here, uh, each of these little freckles uh, is about 10 kilometers or so in, in diameter. Here is what we call a, a chaos region. And if I just showed you this picture and did not give you any context, you might say, well, that looks like a glacier coming off of Greenland or Antarctica, someplace where an ice sheet is breaking up in our own ocean on Earth. But this is an image of Europa's surface. You can see these rafts of ice breaking apart from a complete sheet over here. And somehow they're, they're flowing away from each other in this, this matrix material. Now, the surface of Europa is minus 280 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly 100 Kelvin or so. And so there's no way that there's any floating going on here. And so there's still a lot of questions that we have about how the geological activity actually takes place. But clearly, something is enabling these blocks to move around. 
And so with Europa, uh, we think that its ocean contains about two to three times the volume of all the liquid water found on Earth. Shown here is a, a blue marble created by friends of mine at the uh, Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. And this blue marble represents all of the liquid water on Earth's surface. It doesn't represent water trapped in the mantle. Occasionally I get that question. Uh, but of course, what you should appreciate first and foremost is that we need to protect the, the scarce water that we, we have here on Earth. But by comparison, Europa, even though it's much smaller, its global ocean is about 60 miles or 100 kilometers in depth. On Earth, of course, we don't have a global ocean, and our ocean is on average about four kilometers in depth. Uh, at its deepest depth, our ocean is 11 kilometers deep. So when you do the math, Europa has an ocean of about two to three times the volume of all of the liquid water found on Earth. So let's get to that, that, that physics and that story of how we think we know that this ocean exists. I like to break it into three easy pieces. The first piece is to find a rainbow connection. What do I mean by that? Well, much of what I do in my lab is spectroscopy. And spectroscopy is a scientist's fancy term for saying I study rainbows. Uh, rainbows are nature's way of doing spectroscopy. If you took this rainbow and turned it onto its side and created a graph of color versus intensity, you would have a spectrum. And spectroscopy is an incredibly useful tool for astronomy, chemistry, uh, all sorts of different fields. And in the, the 1960s, the Russian astronomer Vasily Moreau turned his telescope and his spectrometer to the Jovian system and collected spectra like this of Europa. And even though this has none of the obvious beauty of a rainbow, to the trained eye, what this very distinct stepwise function, uh, going from one micron out to about two and a half microns, what this shape tells the trained eye is that Europa's surface is composed of water ice. This is a classical spectrum of water ice. And so some 350 years after Galileo discovered the large moons of Jupiter, including Europa, we then make the transition to not only does it have these moons, but Europa is covered in ice. That's the first piece of the puzzle. The next piece of the puzzle is to babysit a spacecraft. And in this analogy, the, the spacecraft being babysat was the, the Galileo spacecraft, shown here on the right. And the babysitter was the Deep Space Network. And what's happening in this scenario, with, and what happened during the Galileo orbits of Jupiter and the flybys of Europa, is that the Deep Space Network was able to keep very close track of the position of the Galileo spacecraft as it flew by the various moons. And as a spacecraft flies by a body, the gravity of that body slightly perturbs its trajectory. And that very slight perturbation, believe it or not, can be measured back here on, on the ground and converted into a measurement of the moment of inertia of that, that world, in this case Europa. And from that physical property called the, the moment of inertia, you can learn about the interior structure of that world. Now, all of what I just said has a ton of math behind it. I won't be going into that math tonight. 
<laughs> oh, okay, unless you want me to. So, <laughs> um, but what, uh, what you can learn by actually expanding out the gravitational potential so you incorporate additional terms as opposed to just the sort of uh, point uh, uh, mass source that you, you learn in, in Physics 101, what you can learn from that uh, using the moment of inertia uh, is that Europa in this particular case uh, needed to have a distribution of uh, different density masses uh, in its interior. Uh, it needed to have a dense, iron-rich core and mantle region. Uh, it needed to have a less dense, large mantle composed primarily of material with a, a density comparable to, to rocks, to silicates. But then there needed to be an added layer of very low density material density that's around unit density, or roughly one gram per cubic centimeter. What fits that density profile? Water. And so from that babysitting of the spacecraft, from the gravity observations uh, of the Galileo spacecraft as it flew by Europa, uh, that led to this cross-sectional model for Europa, where you've got a, a dense iron or iron sulfur core, a less dense but still pretty heavy rocky silicate mantle, and then an outer layer that's roughly 100 to 200 kilometers in thickness that is of roughly unit density, water and either liquid or solid phase. Now, liquid water and solid water do have different densities, but those densities are so close that the gravity measurements were not able to reveal that difference. So the second piece of the puzzle gets us to this picture, but it doesn't get us to a liquid water ocean in the subsurface. For that, we need the third piece of the puzzle. And the third piece of the puzzle, I like to uh, make the analogy to adhering to airport security. And uh, this is a picture that I took uh, after I got through security. And my apologies that it's, it's fuzzy, but I was trying not to get into trouble. I was trying not to get arrested. Um, but, uh, but so the analogy here is, is to the the doorways that you walk through at airport security, not those big, huge cans that they have us walk into now. Uh, I'm referring to the doorways, the, the sort of classical security systems. Um, what happens when you walk through one of those? Well, when you walk through one of those doorways, you're walking through a time-varying magnetic field. And if you have a conductor in your pocket, that time-varying magnetic field will excite electric currents in that conducting material. And those electric currents will give rise to what's called an induced magnetic field. And then there are sensors on the, the doorway that will detect that induced magnetic field, and the alarm will go off. How does this connect to Europa? Well, when the Galileo spacecraft flew by Europa, as shown in this animation, the alarm essentially went off. The Galileo spacecraft had on board a, a magnetometer, essentially a fancy compass. And with each flyby that it made of Europa, it made those measurements of Europa's magnetic field. What was observed is that Europa does not have its own magnetic field. Europa is not like the Earth, where we've, we've got our own magnetic field. Instead, what was observed is a, is a time-varying field, a field that rose and fall and the rise and fall of Europa's magnetic field was observed to be in direct connection to Jupiter's rotating magnetic field. 
And so essentially what the physics situation sets up is that Europa is kind of like you walking through the metal detector and Jupiter is kind of like the, the doorway with the time-varying magnetic field. But of course, if Galileo, if the Galileo spacecraft detected an induced magnetic field, that necessitates a conductor. There must be a conductor that allows the electric currents to flow and the induced magnetic field to, to, to rise. How could that happen? Well, maybe it's that iron core. Iron is conductive. Well, when you do the math and the modeling, it turns out that the iron core can't explain the induced magnetic field. Well, what about that, that rocky silicate mantle? Uh, there again, it turns out that rocks in general are not conductive enough to explain the induced magnetic field signature. Well, what about ice? Well, we said the, out, the outer layer of water, maybe it's all ice and maybe that's giving rise to, maybe that's conductive and giving rise to the induced magnetic field. Well, ice is not conductive enough. Uh, ice cannot explain it. And it needed to be a conducting layer near the surface to explain the, the magnitude of the observations. The best explanation for that induced magnetic field, for the alarm going off, the, the airport security alarm, the best explanation for that induced magnetic field is a salty liquid water ocean beneath a relatively thin ice shell. And so our, and here again, lots of math behind it. Won't go into it, but it's beautiful physics connecting Faraday's uh, equations and, and uh, uh, Faraday's law and Maxwell's equations. Um, and uh, just, just beautiful physics. But that all leads to our current model of Europa, where you've got this deep ocean connected to a rocky seafloor, overlaid by an ice shell that's maybe a few to 10, 15 kilometers or so in thickness. And we think that ice shell may be convecting, as shown by those, those colors there, where material from the ocean could be upwelling and be incorporated into the ice and then eventually exposed onto the surface. So it's with those three easy pieces, and a lot of detailed math and physics, that uh, we, we have a good degree of confidence of uh, Europa's ocean existing beneath its subsurface. More recently, uh, my colleagues and I have published a paper using uh, the Hubble Space Telescope, where we think we actually have some pretty curious evidence of water plumes erupting out of Europa. But of course, the Hubble Space Telescope is not flying by Europa, and so we have no really dramatic images akin to what uh, the Cassini spacecraft has shown of Europa. And we still have a lot of follow-up work to do with the Hubble Space Telescope to, uh, to confirm or not confirm the existence of those, of those plumes. What does Europa's surface look like up close? Well, the Galileo spacecraft returned just a few postage stamps of Europa's surface. Here is Europa's surface at about six meters per pixel to roughly 10 meters per pixel. Everything in white that you see is water ice. Everything that's gray or black, this is a grayscale image. Everything that's gray or black would be sort of a, a yellow, brown to red color. And we just don't know what that material is. Some of my work and the work of, of some of my colleagues argues that it's salts coming from the ocean below. Uh, some of it is likely sulfur compounds uh, that have collected on Europa's surface as a result of the, the volcanoes on Io delivering ma material to Europa's surface. But some of this, you know, here's a, an ice cliff that's a few hundred meters in height, and the, the dark material here clearly seems to be forming some sort of, of talus of, 
of material that is that has fallen off or uh, accumulated at the base. Maybe there is organic material in that that dark uh, material. Maybe there are fossils of microbes coming up from the ocean below. Maybe there is a frozen squid. We just don't know. And so what? Do we think we do know about whether or not life could exist in an ocean like Europa's or Enceladus or any of the other ocean worlds? Well, that brings us back to our home planet, back to planet Earth. And tonight I'd like to share with you two little vignettes of, of some of, of how my work has brought me to uh, different places on our, on our planet. Uh, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel to all sorts of extreme environments, as mentioned at the beginning of gotten the opportunity to make many dives to the bottom of our own ocean, uh, and I actually just recently returned from a, an expedition up to 87 North uh, to study the, the, the sea floor and the ocean and the sea ice uh, up in that region. Uh, and so part of this is gaining a better understanding for our, how our home planet works and what we need to do to protect it. And part of it is also building a bridge with understanding how life on Earth works and how to then identify habitable environments beyond Earth. So the first place we'll go is up in the Arctic region of Alaska. And here I'll describe to you some of the uh, technological innovations that we're making to try and explore some of these extreme environments and better understand the, the ecosystems. Uh, this is the north slope of Alaska. It's, it's permafrost. And, Within that permafrost are some 10 to 13,000 thermokarst lakes. Uh, and during the summer, these lakes are open to the atmosphere, and it's a nice, beautiful environment. But then in the fall, as it gets cold and dark, uh, everything freezes over, and these, these lakes become like little test tubes where they get sealed off. It gets dark, and they become nutrient-limited and the ice freezes down and essentially squeezes down on these lakes because the lakes are only about a meter to two meters in, in height. And so by the end of the winter, the ice thickness uh, covers much of the lake depth. So we're studying the, the microbes and the, and the limnology of, of these systems. Um, and in particular, we're focused on some of the lakes that are seeping out methane. Here we are on top of one of those lakes popping a, a bubble and we know it's methane because we can light it on fire. And, uh, and so um, uh, I, I've been up there for, for many seasons now, and uh, I bring a, a team of scientists and a, and a team of engineers, uh, and we've been trying to figure out how could we build a robot that we can just leave out there and it monitors these lakes throughout the entire winter when it's cold and dark and, and we just don't want to be sitting on top of the ice. You know, it's nice to be out there for a, for a few days and, and get out in the field, but nobody wants to sit there in, in early January. And that's what robots are great at doing. Uh, robots, if built right, don't mind those extreme environments. And one of the great um, uh, benefits of being a scientist at a place like JPL is I get to work with brilliant engineers who build things like the Curiosity rover. And a few years ago, uh, we were up there and um, we were saying, well, wouldn't it be great if we, if we built a submersible that we could just leave up in these lakes? Then we got to thinking, ah, oh, submersible is kind of, submersibles are difficult because they've got thrusters and they need to kind of float around in 3D space. 
And these lakes are pretty shallow, so we don't necessarily need all that mobility. Why don't we just build a rover that thinks the ice is the ground? Why don't we flip the situation and just have a rover that's buoyant, something that sticks to the underside of the ice and allows us to look at those methane bubbles in the ice, and it can have cameras that can turn and, and look at the, at the bottom of the lake. And so, thankfully, I just get to be the crazy scientist that says, hey, this would be great, and, the, and they go and build it. And, of course, the, the, the geniuses there are, are they come up with, uh, with something like this. This is our buoyant rover for under ice exploration, uh, which, of course, is an acronym, uh, or, or BRUI is what the acronym becomes. No NASA project would be fulfilled without a, a good acronym. Uh, and so the, the, the buoyant rover here um, is shown. It's only got two wheels and a tail because that's the sort of most efficient wheeled structure. Uh, and we also wanted to design it so that we could send it down through a, a drilled hole. So in, the, um, uh, in the, the coming years, the next generation of that vehicle uh, will be able to leave it up there for, for months, and it will essentially be able to kind of just go back and forth and, and monitor the methane coming out of the permafrost and, and look at the, the changes that are occurring in that landscape. Uh, and then, of course, through that technological development, we build the pathway to someday having a, a submersible or, or similar vehicle that, uh, that could operate on, uh, on a world like Europa or Enceladus. So that's a little bit of a technology story. Um, but what about life existing, say, on the seafloor of Europa? Um, how feasible is that? I mentioned it's, a, it's 100 kilometers deep. Surely the pressure must be pretty extreme. Uh, could, does life, uh, could life as we know it survive uh, at the bottom of, of Europa's ocean, uh, say, around some hydrothermal vents on that seafloor? Well, it turns out that the gravity of Europa is about one-seventh of the Earth, and thus the pressure at the depth of Europa's ocean, at the bottom of Europa's ocean, is comparable to the pressure found in the Mariana Trench, the deepest region of our own ocean. And in 2012, I was a scientist on board a, an expedition out to the Mariana Trench, uh, shown here, uh, and we made dives at two uh, different places, the Challenger Deep, the, the deepest place, uh, and the Sirena Deep. Now, um, as was mentioned, I've made dives to the bottom of the ocean, but on this expedition, I didn't go to the bottom. And so when people ask me, what did it look like? I say, well, it looked like this. Um, <laughs> and so, sure enough, if you dropped a stone here, it would go for seven miles or 11 kilometers down, and, and you would reach the bottom of the ocean. Um, this expedition was James Cameron's expedition, funded uh, by, by himself and by National Geographic. And, uh, and Rolex, uh, and it was a, a, an amazing expedition accomplished in a relatively short time frame with a human submersible, shown here, uh, the, the, the Challenger Deep or the Green Machine, uh, a, a submersible that was specifically designed to get to the bottom of the ocean quickly, and I'll show you the vehicle in the water in just a moment. Uh, as I mentioned, I didn't get to make a dive in it, uh, only uh, Jim made the big dive, uh, he made one dive to the Challenger Deep. Uh, that's the first time anyone had been back down to the Challenger Deep uh, since the Trieste expedition uh, with Picard and Walsh made that trip in 1960. Uh, and, uh, and so the, the vehicle was sent over the side of the boat horizontally, 
But then once it was in the water, it went into this sort of vertical torpedo mode. And that was a really ingenious design because anything that kind of spirals and, and swims down to the bottom, it's going to take forever to get to that, that depth. And when you're doing the engineering systems design, that means you have to bring more oxygen and resources to keep the, the human alive. Uh, and humans are a pain to keep alive in, in, in vehicles like this. So the goal was to get to, to have this very uh, sleek design so Jim could get to the bottom in about two hours. Once on the bottom, now this is not an image from the Mariana Trench, but this shows you what, what, it, uh, what it looked like. We, we don't have any uh, direct pictures like this uh, uh, because the additional um, unmanned vehicles didn't work on that dive. But uh, this shows you the, the bottom configuration with the lights up top, the robotic arm, and then the little portal here where one human being can sit in a very zen-like, um, there's got to be some sort of yoga pose name for it, but uh, you know, crunched submersible ball pose. Uh, and uh, somehow Jim managed to do that for the better part of, of eight hours, in uh, two hours down, uh, about three to four hours on the bottom, and then another roughly two hours or so coming back up. Um, so. Thankfully, uh, he came back alive. Uh, everybody breathed a huge sigh of relief after the big dive was made. Uh, but along with the human submersible, the Challenger Deep, we also had uh, a pair of uh, unmanned robotic vehicles called Deep Rovers. These were built largely by Kevin Hardy out of Scripps. Uh, and these are telephone booth size um, systems that have water collection devices on them and cameras, uh, an arm here that... Uh, once you trigger a burn wire, this arm falls, and you'll see that in just a moment. And these are pretty simple systems compared to the, um, to the human submersible, but they're nice because you can leave them on the bottom for a very long time and set out bait traps to see what kinds of, of creatures come. And sure enough, when we dropped one of these down to the Challenger Deep, to that depth of nearly 11 kilometers, uh, what we saw after a couple of hours was that creatures came out of the abyss to feed on this fish head. So this is a net, and you can see the fish head there. And then this is at the end of that, that arm, and this is that water collection bottle with just a little color bar that I taped on it so that we could do a bit of color correction. And so one by one, we saw these amphipods come to feed on this fish head, and before long, the number of amphipods vastly exceeded uh, our ability to, to do a full count on them. Uh, it's hundreds to thousands in that, that field of view. And so as exciting as this was, um, it really, well, let me show you what these guys look like up close, because even though it looks beautiful here, this is what they look like up close. Uh, <laughs> a face only a mother could love. Uh, but they are quite, uh, quite interesting creatures. Whenever I show this picture, inevitably somebody in the audience wants to know, what did they taste like? <laughs> and sure enough, one of the engineers grabbed one of them and uh, threw it into his mouth and, uh, and swallowed it. Uh, and then about five minutes later, he went to the side of the boat. And to put it politely, he returned that creature <laughs> to the ocean from whence it came. Uh, but so the, the, um, uh, as, as beautiful as that, that shot is of all of the amphipods there, uh, 
scientifically, it, it raised uh, some big questions. Okay, all these amphipods come out to feed on the fish head. What are they eating when there's no fish head there for, the, for them to eat? Um, and everything around us in that particular site where we landed was sediments. Well, when we made another drop at the Sirena Deep, what we uh, encountered there uh, serendipitously uh, really um, took us by surprise. Uh, and what we saw was outcrop. And even though rocks or outcrop um, did not really measure the ooh and ah of a, of a dramatic picture of plumes on Enceladus, for a geologist, for an oceanographer, seeing rocks, seeing outcrop at the bottom of the ocean at that depth um, means that we can start to understand the geochemistry of that particular region. And so after the, the dust settled from that arm coming down on the, on the seafloor there, our cameras were able to capture this image showing these various rocks. And when we looked closely at some of these rocks in the images, we saw some discoloration that we think is indicative of a geological process called serpentinization. That's a process that is, it's an exothermic process, a process that generates uh, heat and, and energy in, in the reaction, kind of somewhat similar to a, a glove warmer, if you've ever used one of those. Um, but along with that discoloration of the rocks, we also saw when we zoomed in here that these rocks were covered by these filaments. And these filaments, we think, and we've studied them uh, in some detail based on, the, on the, the, the dust that flowed into our, our uh, the sediments that flowed into our, our uh, water bottle. These filaments, we think, are microbial mats. These are microbes that are living on the rocks, perhaps using hydrogen and, and sulfur compounds that are slowly percolating up as a result of that serpentinization process or perhaps some other processes. And they're eating the rocks, growing, and then those amphipods may well be eating them. So this is the base of the food chain in the deepest, darkest, most extreme environment in our own ocean. And life is thriving there, completely cut off from the sun, uh, no, uh, no concern about what's happening on the surface of the Earth. This ecosystem is just clicking away, eating those rocks, helping feed all those other organisms that, uh, uh, that you saw in the earlier footage. And so it's through studies of ecosystems like this uh, that uh, scientists like myself uh, gain some perspective and some hope that worlds like Europa might, in fact, be habitable. Because there we think we've got the liquid water, the elements, and the energy, perhaps geochemical energy, needed to power and build life. And so where are we going? Well, this is an animation showing my dream of dreams. In my dream of dreams, a few decades from now, we will land a spacecraft on Europa's surface, we'll navigate to a nice safe landing spot, after which it will deploy a melt probe. This melt probe will have some magical heat source on the, the front end, radioactive or otherwise, it will then melt through those uh, hundreds of meters to kilometers of ice. We will hopefully find some, some thin regions. After it gets to the ocean itself, it then uh, will deploy the nose cone and send out an autonomous underwater vehicle. 
Now, this vehicle is going to have to have a lot of artificial intelligence. It's not going to be able to be joystick from Earth. Uh, and then it will go down to the bottom of the ocean of Europa, hopefully discover hydrothermal vents. And at least in this Disney version, we discover large charismatic macrofauna, and we change the world forever. Um, so, as I mentioned, that's the dream of dreams. Uh, what are the steps to that? Well, NASA currently has on the books a, uh, a mission that is, uh, that is, for the time being, named the Europa Clipper mission. This will get to the launch pad in the early 2020s, and roughly three years after that, it will go into orbit around Jupiter, and it will then make some 45 or so flybys of Europa and do a tremendous amount of remote sensing and mapping of Europa, including using an ice-penetrating radar to kind of see where liquid water pockets exist in the ice shell and hopefully see where the ice shell meets the ocean itself. And then after that, and much of what my work focuses on, is a lander for Europa, a vehicle that will go down to the surface and hopefully scoop up some of that dark material that I showed you earlier and actually analyze it looking for organic compounds that could be indicative of life, looking for cellular features, looking for possible indications of life from the ocean below coming up to the surface. So that's where we're going with Enceladus. Uh, hopefully we will have some missions on the books in the years to come, but currently after the Cassini mission finishes, there is no plan to get back out to the Saturnian system. And that's, uh, that's very sad to uh, myself and many of my colleagues. But I'll finish just by bringing it all into perspective. And I'll finish with what is my favorite image from the history of space exploration. It's an image that was carved by the hand of none other than Galileo. It's an image that shows Jupiter at the center, that wheel-like structure. And around Jupiter, Galileo drew these four little dots of light. And those four little dots of light, Galileo very carefully monitored night after night, some 400 years ago. And initially, he, he thought that they were just stars because uh, he used the telescope and he said, oh, they must be stars that are um, that I couldn't see with the naked eye. And he called them the stars of Medici uh, because Galileo was no fool and the Medici family was funding his research. You know, so keep the money flowing, stars of Medici. Uh, but night after night, he looked at these stars and he saw that they were moving. And of course, as we all know, he, through the careful tracking of those points of light, he saw that those stars were revolving around Jupiter. Uh, that, of course, was heretical at the time, and that's what caused trouble with the Spanish Inquisition. But through his careful charting of those points of light, Galileo helped put the final nail in the coffin of Aristotelian cosmology, the idea that the Earth was at the center of the universe and everything rotated around the Earth. Things revolved around Jupiter. Uh, uh, things must revolve around other things. The Earth is not the center of the universe. Uh, Galileo helped open the doorway to the Copernican Revolution. And in the decades after Galileo, we would come to appreciate that the laws of physics, as we know and define them here on Earth, apply to, to worlds and wonders beyond the Earth. And then with the advent of chemistry and new chemistry techniques and spectroscopy and, uh, and, and other things, we would be able to extend our understanding of, of chemistry beyond Earth and we would come to appreciate that the principles of chemistry work on worlds and, and wonders beyond the Earth. 
And then with the advent of the space age and our uh, robotic vehicles that have explored worlds like Mercury and Venus and Mars and, and our own moon, we would come to appreciate that the, the principles of geology work beyond Earth. But when it comes to that fourth main sort of pillar of, of fundamental sciences, when it comes to the, the pillar of biology, when it comes to that that bizarre phenomenon that we all know and love, when it comes to biology and life, we have yet to make that leap. We don't yet know whether or not biology works beyond Earth. We have every reason to expect that it should. Our study of life on Earth and our study of habitable environments allows us to make the prediction that if the origin of life is easy, then worlds like Europa and Enceladus, uh, Mars, etc., they may well harbor life today or have harbored life in the past, but we have yet to do that great experiment. And part of what excites me about the time in which we live is that for the first time in the history of humanity, we can do that great experiment. So it's my hope that our descendants some 400 years from now, in much the same way that we can look back at what Galileo did, my hope is that some 400 years from now, our descendants will look back at this time and they will say, it was then, it was during that time period that humanity did the exploration, made the discoveries, did the innovations, and explored our solar system and beyond and brought our universe to life. Thank you very much.